It's Dr. Denise. This is the Embrace Your Neurostyle and Beyond series. And I'm so honored. I have in my hand as I bring the show in Reclaiming the Sacred, a book about healing our relationships with ourselves and the world. And I have author Jeff Golden right here with us. Jeff, thank you so much for joining me today. It is such a delight to be here with you in all the ways. Well, I wanted to just let everyone know that Reclaiming the Sacred and the timing of this interview, I want to thank you. You and I met months ago, and I feel like this time that we're actually getting to join one another, there wasn't the living, the reality of what does sacred actually mean? What is the timing of it? What it's Being sacred is very personal, and the fact that you were so gracious to do the interview weeks, weeks after the very original one, because you knew that I was in a healing space and and holding time for someone that I really love dearly that passed away. So I just want to say thank you for that, because I feel like we kind of already have experienced reclaiming the sacred in one and knowing one another in this short time. Yes, and thank you. It feels for me part of what's special being here with you. I do get to talk with a lot of different people um, about this book. Um, it won a, a major award, and that brought a lot of attention. And there are different flavors, and I enjoy, enjoy each one of them. But with you, I mean, just the instant depth of connection and humanity and just authenticity that you brought to our interactions, just from day one, it was like, oh, however this unfolds is perfect and meant to be. So I'm so glad that we're here now and get to do the recorded conversation. Thank you. So yes, this is the Reclaiming the Sacred is a grand prize winner of the Nautilus Book Awards. And I want to just pause and think about what, if you could go back in time and think of the exact moment that this book was birthed, because this was birthed 12 years ago, right? Yeah, yeah. Can you take us back to that moment or moments or series of moments? Yeah, I think what you would love and what feels really right for our conversation is to give you a sort of bigger picture and even tie in that award because the the genesis of this book is in some ways atypical. I was not someone who aspired to write a book or be an author. I'd written a fair amount in terms of um, articles for magazines and so forth. I'd done a lot of work in the nonprofit sector. I was teaching courses around this kind of material in a variety of venues, most recently at Vassar College, where I was a scholar in residence. And the serendipity of how this book came to me was 100% this is meant to be. It wasn't a checklist of what am I going to do next in my life, which works sometimes, but in this case, it was just an obvious this is what I need to do. I was really inspired by another book that just happened to cross my path. And it was a New York Times bestseller. It was witty and also very hard hitting and just, I will say graphic in terms of how it described some of the realities of our world, in particular factory farming. And it just instantly came to me that I have a background in enough topics that are really urgent right now in our time. And an ability to stay rooted and in love and presence and um, and sort of a writing style that people have enjoyed. 
and I found myself drawn into writing a book that 10 years later was, was almost nothing like what I thought it was going to be when I first started. But every step of the way, even those times where it felt like a slog or I had to set it aside for a while or jump to a different part of the book, every step of the way, there wasn't any part of me that doubted that this is what I was meant to be doing. And such gratitude that I got to be, in a sense, the vessel that this book flowed through. I get to be the author that gets to sort of channel this gift into the world. It's been such a blessing for me. And it was an immense sacrifice. I mean, we're talking 10 years of working on it, at least part-time, while I had other things going on as well. And um, when you first started talking, you say, can you take us back to the moment? We had been talking about the award, and my mind went to the moment that I was informed about the award. So mm. I've given you the background on the book, but bringing it full circle, uh, I submitted this book to a number of awards, and if it had done well in any of them, it would have been such an honor. But I did secretly know that the Nautilus Book Awards were by far the most prestigious um, and competitive of any that I submitted to. And also, their heart is really in the right place. It's the kind of place that you would really appreciate. They are specifically about trying to recognize and elevate books that are helping to make the world a better place. And so I had all of that in the background. And when I first received the email that I had won the grand prize, the first thing I did was email them back because I couldn't really believe it. I was like, are we talking the grand prize? Wait, like, can I, can I just tell you something really please, cute right now? Please right me. as you mentioned the Nautilus Awards, we yes. were at 444 in the interview. So, and I'm all about um, everyone. I'm all about all the dimensions. So I like to look at numbers and super synchronicity. So let's just keep hearing your joy. But the minute you yeah. went back to that moment yeah. and yeah. mentioned Nautilus Awards, we were at 444. Now we were just at 555. And by the way, everyone is their own perception, but let's just keep discussing this in yeah. this heart-centered feeling yeah. state you had when you realized that yeah. they had really appreciated the magnitude of reclaiming the sacred. Yes, yes. And you just nailed it exactly what that experience was like, even just naming the, the 444, because that evening I got to talk with the director by phone, and it was only well into that conversation that the reality started to hit me, that this is real, that this acknowledgement has come my way, this appreciation. And I started weeping, and really what the weeping was about was the immense love that I could feel because I had done everything I felt like I was being called to do and made the space and made the sacrifices and followed the path that was clearly the path I was meant to follow. And 100% what that experience was for me was a clap back and love from the universe <gasps> saying, you did everything that you have been called to do, have been needing to do. Thank you here you go, here is the love back, and oh, let's keep oh. going with this. Okay, and, so here we go. Wait, yeah. I have to, at this moment of now, yeah. politely interject mm -hmm. that I have a phrase that you've heard me say off show. I call that the kiss on the cheek from the universe. Mwah, mwah. And I think for all of us, those moments where we've stayed in our own truth, our own authenticity, and we've led with heart energy. I call that being in, in, in integrity, in yeah. integrity to your awareness, in integrity to your self-love. And then when you do that, 
you get to be in the place where it spills over in your own altruism and service to all. So it's it's the biggest infinity loop. It's it's a multiverse kiss on the cheek from the universe. So I just want to elevate and celebrate that feeling state for you and also invite anyone listening to think about moments when they stayed the course or it was maybe um, longer than it took, but you were just guided by something you can't even put into words. Yeah, absolutely. That's exactly what this was for me. And and in some ways, it's a perfect transition to what is in the book. Well, can I can I say something go, about what's in the book for a minute? Go right ahead. Okay, yeah. so first of all, when I receive books, and I feel so blessed when people send me their books, and it's a bit overwhelming for me um, in a good way, because I have so many exceptional humans that I have the honor of meeting. So when I received your book, when I unwrap a book, and I saw your handwriting, on the envelope, when I hold a book, I can feel the energy of the book. This is my sensory perception. This is the neurostyle series of we all process and perceive information in our own way. And it's very multidimensional. The fabulous five, biological, psychological, social, cultural, spiritual, and sixth sense intuition. So my process of holding a book and receiving it, I initially um, took your book and it's very sacred to me when I can hold a book and think about the author. So I tune in whether someone's in this earth realm or they passed. And I initially received your book with such an energy that I'm like, whoa, this is like unbelievable without even, it wasn't the Nautilus. It was just what I felt holding it. And then I initially uh, digested and ingested the book via, like I would do um, an angel card where I asked the author, what do they want me to know first? And I just turned to pages and I'd like to do that today in the interview. But then I did over Thanksgiving because I was reverent and did create the sacred space to postpone the interview. I read the whole book. So I just want to tell you that I'm holding it. And the, the for me, this book, what I love is the level of love, the level of academic detail with personal vulnerable, authentic stream of consciousness examples. So anyone that's picking up this book can digest it the way that works for them. You can look at a title of a chapter and you can go into that chapter. And then all the different, all of the different citations, this book is just so full of love and everything. So you can, I want you to say what you need to say, but I just wanted to, to explain my way of receiving this amazing Reclaiming the Sacred. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. And you, in fact, already said something that is always important to me to mention is that I did spend more than 10 years researching and writing this book. It is incredibly academically rigorous. It is full of heart, but it's it's a book that I felt it was really important to go beyond sort of my own intuition and experience and say, here's what psychologists, economists, cosmologists themselves hard science people are saying about all of this and how does that align with what mystics and poets and saints have been saying since ages of old and it's all blended here and and not in an ego tripping way i think it's an extraordinary book in certain ways i already said i i only feel partial ownership for it i really feel like i got to be the the vessel and the channel for it but i wait this is very important this humility The linear language for me at this point of my own, what I call I am awareness, I'm going to say that two more times, I am awareness, I am awareness. My humility, when I say the word I, I feel like when we are blessed to be connected to the unseen, 
the scholars, the mystics, the scientists, the doctors that are here on earth and beyond. And that's why this um, show is also Embrace Your Neurostyle and Beyond. I have a humbled awareness of the trust it takes when I listen to my inner guidance, my divine guidance. And it feels like it wasn't just me. It feels like I have a team of angels helping. And that's what I felt like you had. And now I want to go really like tangible earth-like. So people that are just getting to know you, there was an example in the book. You've been teaching for 30 years. You're a Fulbright scholar. The vulnerability of the moments when you're, when you put, can you take us to when you decided to do the sticky notes and really go to the vulnerable place when you were teaching the way you reach the students of accessing their vulnerability, their authenticity by showing them. Yeah. Yeah. Let me talk about that and draw a couple threads together because we've got so much good stuff going on here. Um, One of the things is that when I say that I really was a vessel for this book channeling through me, it's true. And so it's not me trying to step out of a limelight or something. It's just the authentic truth of my experience. But what is also true and one of the central points in this book is that I am in a journey like many of us of awakening to and living every moment in the truth of my own wondrousness, in the truth of the fact that I am extraordinary, that all of us are beautiful, brilliant, creative, worthy, that that is just the fundamental truth of our existence. That is also part of who I am. And it's a a key part of what this book is. And the chapter that you're referring to, to give people some context, what I do is I start the book by looking at what are those things that, that scientists, psychologists, economists have determined really most nourish human well-being and what are some of the things that don't so much that we tend to spend a lot of time on and very specifically money and possessions i break that down along the lines of what the researchers have said about the real limitations of what money and possessions can do for us in terms of our well-being and then and then there are two other parts of the book that follow which are about what are those factors that have to do with the world around us and what are those factors that have to do with the world within us and, and fundamentally, the world within us is much more powerful than the world around us. In general, this is not to diminish the importance of circumstances and life events and the impact that they really do have on us and, and the importance of being gentle with ourselves, but it's also to really help root ourselves in the truth of ourselves and the power that we have in so many circumstances to help guide how we experience the world, how we live in the world, that we can, we can be patient with and compassionate with ourselves and others around the events of our lives. And yet we can also keep moving forward in ways that really can, can turn those experiences oftentimes into positive experiences as well. And so there's a chapter in the book that you're referring to that I, I think the title is something like the heart of happiness, which is the heart of ourselves. And it really is this idea that no matter what else is going in on, on in your life, And no matter what other sort of aspect of your personality or a sense of gratitude or wonder or presence, how much of those you bring into your daily life, it seems that the single most powerful factor when it comes to our happiness and well-being is our relationship with ourselves. To the degree that we are walking around um, holding judgment of ourselves, saying negative things, fearing how other people will see us or react to us, this weight that we carry with us, for so many of us, I'd say 
almost universal, at least in, in this day and age in this country, is that we tend to internalize negative messages that came to us from our parents or other kids or the media. And the contrary of everything I just said, we walk around feeling like, well, I'm not really very beautiful. I'm not really brilliant. I'm not really worthy, which is, of course, 100% false. But the question in the chapter that you're referring to then is, how do we start to unravel some of that? And and I'll try to describe briefly the activity you're referring to, which well, is that, wait, one yeah, moment. Go right ahead. You one got moment. It. We're going to go yeah. to that example. Okay. But I want to elevate and celebrate that as I get ready to do an interview, I prepare my mind. But this is my sacred space of this moment with you. And we talked off show about how I have a candle lit. And I literally did not pick this mug. This mug, I, I didn't even realize it. This is an example of the unseen. The mug I have with my coffee says, enjoy the happy. So when I think about your book and I think about what you just said, a big part of this book is myth busting. What is happiness? Yeah. And I was blessed. I'm putting my hand on my heart to go and present in India at the Dalai Lama's Body Mind Life Conference in 2018 at the Tibetan Medical Society about nurturing children's mental health. And the fundamentals I spoke about were awareness, self-love, and altruism. And the kiss on the cheek for the universe for me, holding your book, being here with you, is that a big part of this book with academic scholarly bridge knowledge is that only two to four percent of our happiness is defined by material wealth. And in this incredible transmission, there's data that shows the different saturation of points, abundance yeah. points. Yeah third world countries, and also also challenging what is data? What is sensory perception? Who are the people doing the studies? Who are the people that are living in the most happiest state that have so much less financially and material wealth? So I want to say that this book is an elevated, celebrated spiritual transmission of the depth of being spiritually rich, having that awareness and having that self-love. Yes. Yes. And I think sometimes when people hear the word happiness, they imagine something sort of light and fluffy. But fundamentally, what, what I'm talking about in this book and what oftentimes, if not most of the time, the researchers are talking about is a full richness of being, which I tell my students the first day of class, I say, my goal is not necessarily that at the end of this course, you're going to emerge happier, but that you are going to emerge feeling like you are living more in the truth of yourself and living the life you're meant to be and the fullness of your own experiences, even the sad times or the fears or the angers, that you're able to live robustly into the fullness of that and follow the path that feels like it's what you're meant to be doing. And of course, what the science says and what our intuition might tell us is that the more that we live that way, the more that we will actually overall be happier. It's about three, no, actually, I think it's, it's two or three classes in when I do the activity you were talking about where I stand before the class and I have these sticky notes, about 15 of them. And I tell everyone, I have written on these sticky notes, those things that on a deep level, I believe about myself, negative things that I have internalized. These are the things that I would least want someone to notice or think about me. And I, one by one, I read them out loud to the class and I 
name them in the book and I'll name them for you here. And I one by one stick them on me as a way of demonstrating the way that these negative ideas come to us. And, and in many ways, it's, it's not accurate because they can dive so deep within us. They aren't that superficial, but they are foreign to us. They are not inherent to us. These ideas that we've internalized, sometimes from traumatic experiences, usually in our childhoods, as you mentioned, you know, in terms of the focus that you have in your work a lot of times on children. And to name a few of those, I mean, I was bullied as a child. And it was something that I didn't talk about at all. And this wasn't a conscious thing, but I felt like I was such a, I don't know, less than, loser, so unworthy. I think that's true for anyone who's experienced sort of physical violence that that we internalize something around that. But I think also there's a gendered aspect and being a boy, I think about the worst thing that could have happened is for you to be weak and to be physically hit and you don't do anything back. You don't fight back. You know, like in all. The I movies, just wrote that in quotes, not fighting back. Yeah. But when I've read that, mm-hmm. and I, you know, we all have our own way we connect with words, thoughts, and actions. And the way my neurostyle is, is I travel back to the moment that happened. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I have to digest books very slowly because I'm such an empath. And I went back as I was reading about the moment that you were um, going through that physical bullying and having that thought process. I went back to your young boy self and I sent you love. So when I watch yeah. the, the media or the news, the way I understand the universe is I put my hand on my heart because I know that time doesn't really exist. It's just man-made. And I sent, I sent you love. So I just want you to know that at that really deep vulnerable moment when you were sharing that yeah. with your students, I was there at the moment as your adult self. Yeah. And then I travel back and I sent love. And that's how I, the reason why I love your book so much is that when I talk about the seen and the unseen and integrate my knowledge, I, the way I now with humbled awareness, hand on my heart, hopefully I'm going to keep growing in my own awarenesses that we can send love to ourselves at any moment in time and we can be our own biggest self-healer. So your act of vulnerability with these post-it notes and sharing the bullying time, and I'm going to let you finish, is just an act of self-love, healing, and modeling to others that it's okay to be vulnerable and it's okay to have loathing moments and it's okay to heal them. Yeah, and what you're describing so beautifully is sort of the, the next step in what I do with them. I mean... I would acknowledge that there's that aspect of being able to connect with the me of back then in the sort of timeless sense that you just referred to. Mm-hmm. And there's also a sense, there's actually a quote from the Dalai Lama that I can't do justice right now to in the book. Oh no, um, Thich Nhat Hanh, who talks about how within each of us, there is that child. That it's That child is not just of the past, but is alive within us. Yes. And what the research shows is that the more that we avoid these places of oftentimes the word used in literature is shame. These, these, these ideas we have about ourselves that aren't just little mistakes we made or quirks about ourselves, but where we've internalized this negative sense of them. And we may not even believe that in our head. We, I mean, I might not in my head think, oh, well, I was bullied, so I actually am less than and not worthy. But it lives in me as a truth, regardless of what I think in my head. And so these, this little child that internalize these messages exists within us. And the more that we deny that child and these parts of ourselves and keep them shut away, the more power they actually have over us. And the more that we often unconsciously, sometimes consciously adapt ourselves, 
how we interact with people, how we put ourselves out in the world, we limit these things and distort them based on these false ideas that we've internalized about ourselves. And so one of the clear ways forward, I mean, Brene Brown puts it eloquently that the most powerful way to heal these places of shame within ourselves is by talking about them, by giving voice to them. It's by drawing closer to them, a little bit at a time, being compassionate with ourselves. There's no need to overwhelm ourselves. There's no precise time when we need to do this or how we need to do this. But to the degree that we're able to talk with other people about this, I like you and I are doing, and I'm sharing about some of these, these wounds that I carry, if it's in therapy, if it's with a trusted spiritual guide, journaling, I might have already said that, but every one of these allows us to normalize the fact that, okay, I did internalize this idea, but I'm more than that. And I have the, the capability of softening how I sit with that and hold that so that I can live a life that's more authentic to myself. And that allows me to be in relationship with other people in the fullness that I really want so that I'm not masking part of myself or feeling less than, but I can meet you in this moment with the fullness of me and both in modeling that and bringing that energetically, I'm inviting and allowing the people around me to step more fully into that as well, right? And where yes. all of this goes is that eventually I get to, to model removing these sticky notes from myself as I talk about what my journeys have been like to heal those. And it's exactly what we're talking about. It's drawing closer to them and working with them and softening and welcoming these parts back, these parts of ourselves back that we've exiled. I'd like to just elevate and celebrate some core universal truths that I feel like this book academically um, does a kiss on the cheek for just simple things I like to talk about. So when we're in school, um, we're little kids and many of us, if we know we catch on fire, it's like stop, drop and roll. Okay. And so when I think about nurturing one's mental, spiritual and physical health, we have to have our own unique I am awareness in the moment of now. And how do we stay grounded? How do we get to the moment of now? Then all sentient beings, when I like to refer to love all kind, and for me, that's all sentient beings, physical, plants, animals, other beings, and something you're very passionate about. And this book is beyond just the human experience, is that all sentient beings have moments of crisis, stabilization, and thrive. And how does each unique sentient being reach their place of more inner peace on whatever moment of now is happening? So in the moment of any deep suffering, the word happiness can be overrated, like you mentioned earlier, but how do you have peace even when you're going through the moments of crisis? How do you draw upon past experiences, whether your sensory perception is access to other lifetimes or that's your belief system or not? And for me, this book, Reclaiming the Sacred, walks us through all sentient beings, how to have our own unique inner peace, but it does it in such a way that's academic. It has specific examples about wealth and income it has quotes from masters, ascended masters, and it has specific examples of Jeff, Jeff's experience with students and really being relatable. So I really want to say that awareness, self-love, and altruism are such fundamental building blocks of spiritual um, peace 
but it's unique for each person and everything's energy. So every feeling state. So as an adult and child integrative psychiatrist, I've got my Western medicine training, but with humility at this point and the way I understand things, I'm starting to say, I practice universe medicine. And what universe medicine is to me is the humility of honoring and celebrating scientific method, honoring all belief systems, and then getting the data. And then how do we actually then apply that to real life, day-to-day happiness, world solutions? So I'd like to just pivot at this part of the interview and say, you have a big shout out to humanity. This book was not only the personal examples of that vulnerability and peeling things away, but it's a consciousness transmission for all sentient beings and what you want for the plants, the animals, the corporation, the greed. To me, this book is a channeling of what I call the pulse of consciousness and giving specific examples at this moment and how the way you went back in time and gave examples of how we could heal, heal as communities that have been wronged, people's land that's been taken away, animals that have not been treated right. So I just want to really make sure that people know that there's microcosms, macrocosms, and layers to this incredible Reclaiming the Sacred book. Thank you. And as true to every conversation we have, just in listening to you, my mind went so many different directions, but I'm going to try and pick one and focus in and not just get totally distracted by all the others. But one of the things that we've been talking about is an awareness, and by the way, that awareness, love, and altruism that you referred to. I mean, in some ways, that just described the backbone of that of that part of the book that's about our inner worlds. Um, one of those chapters, the one I think right before the one we were talking about, is about our emotions and our felt sense of the world, our intuition. We've talked about that a little bit, and I talked about it in terms of what it was like to write this book and then to experience that sort of big clap back love that I received that, as you mentioned, happens in our daily lives in small ways and also sometimes can happen in those kinds of enormous ways. But there is a tendency in this day and age in in the United States in many industrialized societies that have been sort of shaped by this global worldview of the United States and Europe, which is um, that emotions serve little or no purpose other than just being happy that that's a great one let's go for that one but that in many ways like stop crying what has crying ever accomplished that kind of thing or even anger or fear these kinds of emotions that are considered negative what has been found is that naturally we do tend to be happier when we're in one of those positive states like when we're happy delighted we're doing something pleasurable But we are overall the happiest when we actually have a range of experiences, when we allow ourselves to experience the sadness and the fear and the anger as well. And besides everything that you've named about past lives and and ancestors and how those can be alive in us, from a very just hard scientific perspective as well, we have hardwired within us the wisdom of not only 300,000 years of human ancestors, but millions and billions of years of our ancestors of mammals and other life and everything that those bodies learned about how to be successful and thrive and survive in this world, in this material existence. That exists within us. And most of that, as a child who is 
pre-linguistic pre could tell you, um, and as, as beings understood as other creatures that don't have a language as we know it, and understand and experience the world is through the felt sense. There is so much brilliance and delight in this felt sense that so often we're told to box up, put away, and just follow our heads. And what the scientific research shows is that not only are we generally happier, but we're actually much healthier when we allow ourselves to experience these emotions. Like sometimes letting those tears come, letting ourselves just feel overwhelmed or sad at times, that there is a deep wisdom in that. And not only is there the immediate sort of positive gain of living in the truth of that, but circling back to what we were talking about, living in our deeper purpose and being able to notice the kisses on the cheek, being able to respond to the invitations from the universe and from our own hearts, those can exist in a head realm, but they so often exist in a heart realm, in a felt sense realm. And the more that we are able to slow down, turn away from so many of the things that are not serving us, like a super emphasis on rushing and so much work and money and possessions and closing down and boxing up our emotions, the more that we can expand into this much broader sense of ourselves, the truth of ourselves as these full sense beings that can pick up on all of these things, again, in a very maybe spiritual sense and a very hard science sense as well, it's true in both of those realms. It allows us to live more fully into who we really are and are meant to be and to follow our paths and feel and live into and enjoy the rewards of, of living in purpose. What you just said from a scientific method and the power and the energy of feelings, I feel very hand on my heart, uh, fortunate that I work with children, teens and adults. And I, I've been on the front lines of helping people go deep into their own, like what's their suffering and how does that look and how can they reach their own inner peace as an adult and child integrative psychiatrist. And I went to a meeting in 2015 at UCLA. I, I did my child psychiatry at UCLA, my adult psychiatry at Emory. And I was honored to go to a lecture with Dr. Dan Siegel, who is profound and prolific in bridging all the realms as an adult and child integrative psychiatrist, and also Minas Kafatos, who's a quantum physicist. And they had such a nice breakdown of this idea of feeling states and suffering. And I, that's when I thought about crisis, stabilization, thrive. And when we look, and then I'm really interested in how you're going to integrate this with your absolute vast knowledge, that when we identify a feeling state, when the system is at the highest level of feeling state of suffering, from what I gathered from a mind, body, soul, spirit, science, quantum, from that incredible lecture, and also what we talk about in philosophy and religion, that when we go into our suffering, there's this unseen energy in the universe for the most infinite potential for change. So to me, when I work with my patients, I don't just look at it from Western medicine diagnostic. I have them go deep into their own, whatever their unique neurostyle belief system is in match their vibration and encourage them to go into the feeling state and then be their own master alchemist. And that's a whole body of tools of good nutrition, holistic health, volunteerism, so that you can use that feeling state of the unseen energy in the quantum universe to have the highest opportunity to grow with your own unique inner peace. 
And it was just an incredible bridge of science meets spirit. And the reason why I bring this back to your book is this book to me gives examples of that. It's not just saying it out loud. Your book gives the academic scholarly time that it took to actually, for people, you can read this at whatever pace you want, but I'm on the front lines really helping people go from being suicidal to not suicidal, to choosing to drink alcohol, not choosing, to at this time of year, managing their grief and going deeper in what does that mean to your family system? What are new rituals? So I encourage people not to run from their feelings, but to use their feelings to be their own best friend and to be more vulnerable, more authentic. And that to me is an example of in vivo reclaiming the sacred. And it's your own sacred, not Jeff's, not mine. It's yours. Yeah. There's um, Pema Chodron, a very wise and prolific uh, Buddhist monk, uh, speaks more beautifully and persuasively about this than anyone I've encountered in terms of what it means to not insist on always being happy or trying to just always be good or avoiding suffering. And to be clear, I don't want to romanticize suffering in any way, but there is a truth about both that through suffering, there is oftentimes immense growth, so much learning, a deepening of our own empathy, of our understanding of other people, of ourselves. And also the research shows that people who have experienced a few significant adverse life experiences overall tend to be happier than people who have not experienced any. Not surprisingly, they are also happier than people who've experienced just a ton of them nonstop, right? And again, that's part of not romanticizing suffering. It's not about rushing into suffering. It's about acknowledging that, well, first of all, suffering, change, loss are fundamental parts of existence. They're going to come one way or another. So how do we relate to those? And as Pema puts very eloquently, it's about how to live with a little bit more acceptance, a little less fear, a little more curiosity about what's on the other side of that fear or that potential sad or hard experience so that we can blossom ourselves, can continue to learn and grow and live in the truth of who we are, and so that we aren't distorting the path of our lives based on these fears or shutting these parts of ourselves down. Friedrich Nietzsche, if you'll allow me to quote him, because he's often misunderstood. He had a sister who took some of his writings and rewrote them after his death and um, and gave him a whole spin that was not really his own belief system. In other words, he often got equated with Nazism, which he actually loathed. A, a powerful, amazing thinker. And one of the things that he wrote was, and I don't know the exact quote, but the basic idea was that Happiness and unhappiness are twins. They either grow and thrive together or they wither and die together. And those of us who want to try and only live by happiness and cling to that and refuse the gifts and importance of the unhappiness and some of the challenges in life are going to be thwarted in our quest for happiness as well. That again, it's about living in the fullness of both of those is where so much of the richness lies. And ultimately, where more happiness does tend to lie as well. 
Can we, first of all, I love and I appreciate the time, the academics, the knowing and the way when you're saying Pema's name or you're saying any scholar or someone that's here on earth or not, how much you've been very reverent in the way you've presented the data in the book and the way you talk about souls. I think that one of the things I think we can all learn from is how important all of us are in the moment, whether it's our gardener, whether I smile and think about the person helping pack my groceries. I just want to say that reclaiming the sacred to me is being reverent in the moment of now. And I gave myself when I had your book and I still have about I'm about three to four months worth of books that people want me to like, honestly, it's, it's, it's my honor, but part of my, to read books and to be here and hold sacred space. But the magnitude of each soul is so important to me that I've learned to how to slow down time and say the only moment I have is now, because I had to allow myself a feeling state when we lost a family member that felt like a father figure, but then I was still doing life. I was still raising my son, taking him to school, patients that have emergencies and the show had to still go on, but you can slow it down. It doesn't have to be this frenetic materialistic pace. And I think depending on where we live in the world, people have it a little bit more figured out. When I was at the Tibetan medical society, a big part of what the Buddhists were talking about is Western and the materialism. And I think I was the only one there. I actually was the only one there from a Western culture that year. And I literally did not agree with it. It's just that, you know, there are people that are living um, and leading and living with heart centered compassion and altruism all around the world. I just think that your book gives sort of like the the thought process, what I want to say is this book is an invitation for how you want to determine your sacred, your sensory perception. And it gives academic scholarly insights, but you're supposed to interact when you're reading a book or taking it in, question things, think for yourself. What does this mean for you? I think that's one of the most important things that I wanted to say is that your writing style and the way I received the book is in the way I like to also invite people is remember you are your own best friend. You have your own answers. Just look at who you want to surround yourself, the environment you want to be in and, and lead with the heart. I love that. And I have, I have two thoughts that I want to share, but first a quick time check on. Um, no, we're good. I want to, we're here. Okay. Why don't we, um, spend five to seven more minutes. And I want to honor right. your higher self of transmission in this first interview of anything else you, cause this is your book, your channeling, your, you've been on yeah. so many interviews, but I also want to make sure if there's other times you've done interviews and you wanted to kind of end on your note, this is your time. I want you to say whatever you want to say. Thank you. I love that. I'm going to start out by saying this is my favorite interview conversation that I've had. I love the freedom to speak just so deeply and truthfully about some of these things that sometimes time doesn't allow or another person's perspective doesn't allow me to really dive quite as deep. Um, I want to share two thoughts. First, the title Reclaiming the Sacred in the exact way that you just said. First and foremost, what that is referring to is you. You, every one of you out there who is hearing this, it is about reclaiming the sacredness of you, 
because for so many of us, we live in a time and a place where that is not elevated or nourished within us. That sense of us and our lives and this world as sacred. So fundamentally, that is what this book is about, is reclaiming the sacredness of you. And the other part of the title is, it's healing our relationships with ourselves and the world. Because the consequence of us being distanced from our own sacredness and an appreciation for the sacredness of the world is so much of the violence and destruction that we're seeing in the world today. And we are living in the most critical era in human history by certain objective measures in terms of the level of destruction that we are bringing to the world. And the fact that so much of that is rooted in these behaviors that don't actually serve us in the first place. So specifically, one example, the pursuit of money and possessions. In the United States, we have been consistently less happy year by year since the 1940s up till now, despite the fact that the material gains are otherworldly. I mean, people in the 1940s, a third of them didn't have indoor plumbing, right? Our incomes are vastly greater today in general than they were back then. We're surrounded by this material wealth. It's not serving us. It's not elevating our well-being. And in many ways, it's undermining it. And so the, the, the consequence is that we pursue this stuff. It doesn't serve us. And it is leading to vast destruction of the environment and tremendous harm to other beings as well, other people and other creatures. So in following this path of nourishing our own selves, getting more in touch with the sacredness of us and the world, it's a, a, a selfish, a beautifully selfish and important journey. And it is also one of the most selfless things that we could be doing is tending to ourselves and these wounds and shifting how we're living in our lives. And the other thought I wanted to share, a, a quote from the book from the mystic Persian poet Rumi, is he, he advises us, do not seek for love. Seek instead all of the barriers within yourself that have been erected against love. And I think if I were going to leave people with one thought or one felt sense thing, it would be to circle back to what we said at the beginning about the wondrousness of you and the fact that that is the truth of you that the negativity that has been planted within us, the barriers, as Rumi refers to them, are not who we are. It's not about we need to go out and do all these things and change all these things and learn all these things. Lots of things in the world can help us in our journey, but the truth is that the love and belonging and joy and sacredness of each of us is right here, right now. It's nowhere else, it's within us. And it's just our journey to find the ways that we have barriers within us against that and start to be able to unleash that more and more and more, whether it's through significant changes we make in our lives or just little commitments we make daily, weekly to nourish ourselves, to, to touch into these places, to learn to grow. Um, but that that is inherently who you are is this wondrousness. And now go out there and start to, to unravel it. That's beautiful. One more. If you could travel back in time, and maybe this is for another interview, and 
talk to your younger self, what would you tell yourself? You're right. We could do a whole interview about that. But what comes to me is that I actually lost my father when I was six. And it, it, it affected me deeply uh, in many ways. And I do think that there's a level on which if we want to talk about like preschool or even that age of six, where I was, I guess, uh, in first grade, you know, the verbal only goes so far. There's really just the felt experience of things. And if I could go back in time, what I would love to do more than anything is just be there and hold myself to mm. just, I, I, it was something that I often didn't have. And I think that communicates so much more than any words ever could have. I maybe, you know, is that as I got older, I could feed myself some of the words to help heal these things or help me keep a healthy perspective on things, not internalize so many things. But I think just that felt experience of being held and loved would Jeff, probably be the most important thing of all. Yeah. Can you hear me? When I, I can hear you. When I'm okay, hearing good. this, yeah. I my empath style of just in the way I am when I'm working with my patients or being a mother, you know, I adopted my son at birth. And I feel like this would be a reverent part two. Cause right when you said that, and I asked the question, I immediately had tears and they weren't necessarily tears of sadness. They were empathy and love tears that we can all feel when we just want to be hugged more. Mm-hmm. And I, I would love to open up the window for another part two and look at what that's like for all sentient beings of any type of loss and going back to our younger selves. And, and maybe after everything we can think about and reclaiming the sacred and what you know as an adult human now and what I know, maybe what we would tell our younger selves. Maybe we could have mm-hmm. a really yeah. sweet show where we're yeah. vulnerable about our own um, childhood traumas. You know, my father, I was so, so blessed that he did get sober when I was age 11. But I remember finding the vodka bottles and really worrying that he was going to die because the uh, social worker, when he was in the intensive care unit after he'd been, he went into delirium tremens and he did almost die when I was eight. And so I think I was so blessed to have him live on earth up until he was age 67. He was able to go into his own suffering, get sober, get his relationship with his higher power And I think one thing that might be really helpful um, as a part two is you and I just going vulnerable and then integrating your body of wisdom and knowledge and the ascended masters and mine, but make it really tangible so that there's some great things that people can think about. I would love that. That would be so enjoyable and probably also so nourishing, right, for each of us. Yes, because it's part of the human condition, loss, suffering, and yeah. and and no matter what age we're at, we can I the way I understand the universe now is we can go back in time and write ourselves a note, give ourselves mm-hmm. love, mm-hmm. um, attract what I call in in our own in integrity of our own social circle that understands us. And um I know we need I wanna wrap up this interview but there was a specific vulnerable part of the book when you had this awareness of when you started to date of Mm -hmm. some of the thinkings you had after being bullied after losing your father um who am i as a man yeah how do i relate Mm -hmm. and how does that our past experience is how do they 
inform us of how we can get closer in intimacy or lack of intimacy. And I think by doing a part two show and going deeper into some of your vulnerabilities and mine, but then being academic, it will be a gift to others to kind of think about how that is for them. What, how do you create a, your own unique blueprint of embracing your mm-hmm. neuro style and beyond your own unique reclaiming the sacred, your own unique, I am awareness is self-love and then altruism and yeah. just in that authentic vulnerability. And how do we do that? So I just thought that, how would it, what, how does that sound for our next interview? I love that. And not surprisingly, everything you just said, I feel like we could fill five episodes with how many things my mind and heart just immediately leapt towards. So let's definitely figure out another time to do a part two. Okay, great. And right now with humbled gratitude in this moment, can you please let everyone know where they can Uh, get your book, where they can find you and and everything before we have that next interview and, and just so everyone can be inspired. And by the way, this book, the way I would recommend it, everyone, if you're so called to purchase it or just receive it. Mm -hmm. This is the type of book for me. That's like one of my books that's like on my altar. Or if you, it's so magnificent that sometimes you can read one chapter or a couple sentences and that's such the download you need. So it can be a very rich, you can, you can receive this book however you want to receive it. Yeah. I, I've been told people are reading this book in all kinds of ways. And some people it's like, I read a chapter a night. Many people, it's just like you said, just opening it to a place and just reading and seeing what's there. Um, The name of the book is Reclaiming the Sacred, Healing Our Relationships with Ourselves and the World. My name is Jeff Golden. The book is available online at all of the normal online sellers. I would encourage you as well, if you are if you use your library, make sure that your local library has it or go ahead and check that out. It's available as an audiobook if you want to hear me read the whole thing to you as well. Um, and if you just want to learn more about me or uh, learn about any of the classes that I offer or other ways of just being in touch, that's uh, simply reclaimingthesacred.net. And if you just look up Reclaiming the Sacred and Jeff Golden, you'll find the book and that website. So easy enough. It is uh, 10 years of research drawing on the wisdom of thousands of people. I encourage everyone to connect with the book in some way, uh, whether it's, again, just opening to a random page or reading through the whole thing. But I think there's a lot of opportunity here for some doors to be open. So I encourage you at least to, to figure it into your life in some way. Thank you for our time today. And I just want to let everyone know how much you mean to me. And I'm going to get better. It's almost 400 episodes of asking everyone to please take the time to write a review. 2024 is really exciting. I'm going to be doing more video interviews. And my intention is to do deeper dives with um, individuals like Jeff. It's so sacred to me and figure out ways I can have more shows, more community. And you guys all inspire me. So please write a review and also please go and visit Jeff's site get his book. And Jeff, thank you for our sacred time today. And also for modeling the waiting and understanding my sacredness and doing this interview at the right time, which was right now. So thank you for that. Thank you so much, Denise, for everything. And thank you, everyone. Okay, everyone, sending you lots of love. Have a great week. 